Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. It's sports day on today's show. In the week, we found out Rishi Sunak likes to do spinning to Taylor Swift. We're going to find out how MPs, perhaps doing the world's unhealthiest profession, like to keep fit. That's coming up after today's Economist panel. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Morning, guys. Hello, India. Hi, Patrick. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to see you. How are you? Very well. Actually, with the dogs have just had a fight and it's all quite chaotic and there's blood in the room that I'm um, talking to you from. So, so other than that, great. <laughs> are, they, are, they, are they all right? It's, it's not, it sounds like it could be lethal. It was really horrible. One of them's gone to the vet to be checked out. He's fine. And and the and my and the human, my partner, has gone to A and E to get a stitch in his hand because he broke up the dog fight. So it's been quite stressful, but I think it'll be fine. Uh, well, I, I I hope so, dear. I hope so. Uh, well, I'm glad you I'm glad you can join us despite the uh, the literal blood sports unfolding in your kitchen. Uh, James, any blood in the room you're in? No, I'm pleased to report that everything is under control in the Marriott household. It's very calm here. <laughs> it looks, it looks calm. I can, you know, I can see the entirely blank backdrop behind you. What's in that frame? What's in that frame? It's a picture uh, from the Lucian Freud exhibition. Not an original Lucian Freud, but <laughs> uh, a print that I bought for, I think, about £10. I was going to say, columnist wages at the Times do not stretch that far. Well, maybe no, yours do, do James, because your columns are always... Your, your columns well, are always uh, if only. One day, one day, I will speak to you from in front of my original Lucian, Lucian Freud portrait. Yeah, maybe. Maybe one day. Uh, right, let's get <laughs> cracking, shall we? Uh, we're talking about blood sports. Let's talk about political blood sports. Uh, some guy in the Times called Patrick Maguire has written about uh, Lee Anderson, whose tune basically we've all been dancing to this week. He's the Tory deputy chairman who told migrants to F off back to France if they didn't like uh, the Bibby Stockholm barge. Um, your thoughts on Lee Anderson, Indian night? Breath of fresh air or uh, you would sooner never hear from my, him again? My, my thoughts on Lee Anderson are that I am... Um, pretty appalled by him. Um, I find everything he says to be uh, dog-whistly and intemperate. However, I also think that he is speaking directly to um, 
form well newly Tory former Labour or flip that round if you want um, old school voters in uh, the Red Wall and those voters can be very socially conservative and they feel to they need to feel that their cons their concerns are addressed and listened to and heard so although he talks in this very brutal shorthand he's kind of at the moment doing the government's dirty work because the government is in London in its nice Savile Row suits all fragrant and pristine and not wanting to overly involve themselves with it so he's doing something necessary and it's very easy for people like me to you know think oh this is just kind of racism and this is all this is all hideous and there is a bit of that I think but I don't think it's so much racism with migrants or refugees I think it's fear um, and of course there's always overlap between racism and fear but bona fide economic migrants who are allowed in are by definition uh, risk-taking, hard-working, determined, ambitious and it doesn't mean that they're going to all magically turn into captains of industry but they'll probably do all right for themselves and their children will probably do better than that and I think that's very difficult to watch or can be very difficult to watch if you're from a community that is either struggling now or has been struggling perhaps for generations so I think that's what lies beneath a lot of it so I think underneath all his intemperate Trump-like shouting, using words that, you know, a red-faced man would use in the pub, there's something that absolutely needs to be nailed and addressed by uh, Starmer's Labour Party before the next election. Well, what do you reckon, James? I mean, do you think the Labour Party's tactic, I can tell you, is they think, you know, there's a line... In my, uh, that, that, you know, that I quoted from uh, F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, Winston Churchill's best mate, who, whose basic contributions to British politics were just witty one liners. And he once described Lloyd George, uh, who had obviously lost power in the 1920s, as buzzing angrily uh, against the glass of, uh, like a wasp against an upturned glass. Um, you know, and that's basically the stance the Labour Party are trying to take with Lee Anderson, which is to ignore him. But do you think, as India was saying, someone who clearly speaks for a constituency in the country can necessarily be ignored? Yeah, I thought your column was fascinating. I have to say, I, I think, I think there's an argument that Lee Anderson can can productively be ignored, simply because I just think politicians should they be using the F word in national newspapers? I think there's an argument this is kind of undignified beneath the tone of political debate in this country. And you can reasonably say, you know, there's a debate to be had about immigration, but this is not the terms in which we should conduct it. And we don't want to get involved in the version of British politics, which involves people, tell people telling migrants to F off back to France. And I sort of think, you know, there may be a kind of dignified means of ignoring it for the Labour Party that way. I also think you know, they shouldn't worry about how necessarily influential uh, this kind of strand of opinion is in the country. And there is a survey last month, I think, that showed that British people are sort of, I think, in international terms, the third most welcoming or the third most positive feeling towards refugees. And there's a, I think there's a kind of, there's a real tendency to, you know, perhaps especially among metropolitan Labour Party types, to fear that there's this huge strand of the country that has to be appeased for its, its racist opinions. And I actually think that may not be that may not be particularly true. I'm sure there are some people who are an audience for this sort of stuff, but I wonder if you can overestimate how appealing those views are. And just before we move on, 
India, can I ask you your view about swearing in politics? Is it a mark of authenticity or should there be basic standards of, of public discourse that you know, our politicians uh, don't violate? I think there probably should be basic standards of public discourse. I'm not, I'm not clutching my pearls about it, put it that way. I mean, the, 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 the problem with, the, well, the, the goodness of swearing is that it conveys very succinctly quite a complicated idea. You know, you know exactly what the person means. If the person swears, whether accidentally or deliberately, it, you know that they feel strongly, perhaps even passionately about what they're swearing about. So as a kind of very brutal, direct use of language, it kind of works. But yes, I wouldn't like it if everybody effed and blind or blinded all over the place all day long. Obviously, that would be that would be bad. And James's point, I think, is absolutely right that, you know, our politics, which already looks like a joke, is not made any less joke like by people saying people should F off. James, do you ever swear? I don't think I've ever heard you swear. And do we I swear, yeah. I, and we work I, in the newsroom together, so I, I would have expected. I, I unfortunately, I'm afraid I do swear. I wouldn't swear in public if I was a politician. I think my presence in the newsroom is probably quite... I'm not one of those journalists who's rushing around trying to nail corruption or, <laughs> you know, uh, get angry about some sort of uh, dodgy politician. So my, my newsroom presence is usually quite calm. There's no, there's no call for swearing as one you know, taps out one's weekly opinion, um, sitting as I do in the books cupboard. It's a very, I try to bring a very calm and polite vibe to the newsroom. Uh, only uh, only corruption in the literary world. Uh, yes, agenda. well, that might that might get me swearing. I've also been just been reminded that you have in the past on this very item, although not with me in the presenter's chair, effed and blinded, James. Yeah, I uh, did. I, I, got, I, got in I got in trouble for that. Although I think the swear word I used was mild enough that I hadn't understood that it would be unacceptable on the radio. But obviously, this is an upstanding family radio station and I, I let it down. Here, 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 here. Uh, you know, keep your, you know, Victorian swear words from Trollope away from my uh, <laughs> Ofcom, Ofcom complaint-free uh, show. Thank you very there much. There will be no swearing on the Patrick McGuire show. Good, good. No, no chance. Now I feel an irresistible urge to swear. Don't worry. The guy, they, someone's going to do it now. We're yeah. all, on, I think we're all <laughs> on edge. I can feel myself ready to start sort of blurting something out but i'm going to restrain myself okay okay let's talk about something depressing so we don't so <laughs> sorry so i was about to say let's talk about something depressing james's column uh which um well my, my columns often are a little bit depressing uh well and this week's was a prime example you've written about <laughs> the lack of idealism in young people you wrote for many especially the immiserated graduate class whose resentments propelled so many of the cultural upheaval of the uh, upheavals of the 2010s a shock at injustice is turning to resignation. Campuses are quieter. Speaking to students recently, I got the impression of a cohort more focused on internships than on changing the world. Talk us through that, James. Are young people really increasingly cynical? I think this is a bit of a... I mean, cynical, cynical may be the word, realistic may be another word. I think there's an interesting cultural shift that I've really begun to notice over the last couple of years. My theory in this column is that there was a period of time between the mid-2010s and early 2020s when our, you know, sort of cultural environment was shaken by all kinds of upheavals. Uh, everyone was getting cancelled on Twitter all the time. You had um, other forms of sort of idealism, the trans rights movement, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, uh, protests on campus. There was a real mood, I think, of, you might call it outrage, you might call it idealism, uh, you had Jeremy Corbyn elected as uh, Labour leader. I think Boris Johnson, the Brexit vote uh, for older people reflected the same sort of mood that we want to tip everything upside down, that we really thought we could, you know, 
shake the country by the scruff of its neck and change things through movements or politicians. And I really think that mood in the country has died away now. I think you hear a lot more about all that cultural stuff that used to obsess us even a year ago. I think it's a lot less about that kind of stuff. Uh, our, you know, our party leaders are much blander and much, you know, much less prone to promising they're going to change the entire country. And yeah, it was the other sort of thing that fell into place for me was I was on a few university campuses for peace a couple of months ago. Doing meet and, and greets in nightclubs, celebrity, <laughs> celebrity yeah. personal DJ, appearances. DJing student, night, student nightclub events, no, if only one day. When I've got the Lucian Freud painting, then that'll be, <laughs> that'll be the kind of celebrity circuit I'm on. Uh, and I really got the impression that when I was at university, um, a slightly terrifying long time ago now, it was all protests, outrage, idealism, and now I got it. I got the. I sort of got the vibe. It was much more knuckle down, do your internship, and you know, just think about getting a good job. So it was a really interesting cultural shift. I think has taken place. Uh, do you agree, India? Are the young people you know increasingly fatalistic? Not particularly, but I do agree in that. Um, but but I mean, it's like anything else, isn't it? There's a massive outrage about something fairly outrageous solution and, and sort of dramatic solutions are proposed to the massive outrage. Everybody mar marches around red in the face and outraged for a while. And then it kind of settles down. Maybe legislation is passed and 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 the the the, the initial outrage has served a useful purpose in alerting everybody to an injustice or perceived injustice. And then that is reflected slowly. Um, and then the moment passes and I think there was a, there, I think James is absolutely right, and that there were an enormous number of things that people felt outraged about, and that's kind of that's most of those things have been addressed, not necessarily satisfactorily, but in one way or another, legislation has been passed, um, and people have sort of simmered down. And also, I think everybody is so broken at this particular moment in time, of whatever age, everybody is just sort of crawling along brokenly, waiting for something nice to happen, even if it's just the sun shining. That 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 kind of you know ferocious appetite for change has um, gone into retreat temporarily, maybe. I find, I do find this really interesting. I do wonder, James, how much of this sort of fatalistic, subdued mood is in fact yes, it's a product of political circumstance, but also sometimes I wonder is this just because kids are on their phones all the time now? You know, is so many of the behavioural or changes in mood explained by the fact? You know, much more so than our generation, James, who were just sort of on the cusp of mobile, proper mobile internet and proper smartphones, that people just sort of, you know, are living online much to a much greater extent than they were before. It's a really interesting point. I think, I think there's something in that. I, I had an interesting conversation with a guy, got, I mean, terrifyingly, he was a journalist, what, sort of five or six years younger than me, so Gen Z to my millennial. And he was saying that he thought his generation was a bit more cynical uh, a bit less idealistic than my generation. And his explanation was that, whereas people of our age, you know, we kind of got the internet, what, towards the end of adolescence, halfway mm. through adolescence. I think there was a feeling of idealism about the internet. We suddenly thought, oh my God, we've got this tool, we've got Twitter, we can change the world, we can tweet at our least favourite politicians and, you know, tell them they're terrible people and that might really change something in the world. And his theory was that when you've grown up, you know, for your entire childhood, even on the internet, you're much more jaded about it. You've kind of seen everything. You know, you've seen all the terrible stuff the internet has to offer. You've watched every idealistic social justice movement roll across Twitter and then sort of fizzle out. And it makes you perhaps a little more cynical about your capacity to, to change things. I mean, there are all kinds of other factors. You know, 
there are people, young adults now, who really kind of one of their first politi- conscious political memories would be the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Mm. And I think that is a very, and that really shapes a different political outlook. My first political memory is the election of Barack Obama in 2008, probably one of my first major ones. Well, mine is... So uh, that's a big sort of shift. Mine was Robert Kilroy Silk leaving UKIP. Uh, and I was, look, I was, only, I, was, I, was, I was only seven, I was only eight years old at the time, which just... What kind of, what does that do to your political consciousness that that is your formative experience? Uh, I've spent... When you get Patrick, you get Patrick Maguire. I've spent two decades <laughs> thinking and speaking about Robert Kilroy Silk and indeed on one occasion going to his house, but we don't need to talk about that. Now, the comedian Alistair McGowan says that impressions are a dying art form because young people no longer watch television. Now, to test that theory, we've got impressionist Lewis McLeod on the line. Hi, Lewis. Hey, how are you doing? Very well. Great, great to have you. Great to have you. Very much looking forward to this. Now, firstly, do you agree with Alistair? Um, well, as I mean, for about 30 years, I think he's got a great point. I think it's more the delivery system that's changed. I think that with social media, we're forced into a position now where we have to just be a bit leaner. Mm. The sketch format, generally, um, in a half-hour show, that's that's gone. Everything's been dissected up. So it's the delivery system, using your phone. And I think that's maybe the root of it. Plus, we've got AI coming in, which has been, for us, for us that are working in voice-related jobs, whether it's marketing, commercials, stand-up comedy, everything's got to be sharper, I think, because of, you know, TikTok and, you know, just sound bites. Yeah, indeed. We never really had that before. Yeah, and that and that's sort of where I, the impressionists I sort of know now, I think of people like Darren Farley, who does impressions of Liverpool footballers and, you know, as you say, countless people on TikTok. And I'm, they're people you encounter on social media and, and not necessarily yeah. on TV. Now, you must hate this question, uh, <laughs> Lewis. Uh, I think you know what I'm going to ask. How much, how much sort of speech do you need to do a sort of, you know, on the hoof impression of someone? Uh, well, actually, I'm, I got pretty good at it. I got great advice from a wonderful comedian, actress, playwright, presenter, uh, Lynn Ferguson, about 25 years ago. She said, if you treat an impression as a song, it'll make it much easier. So when I hear a voice, take somebody like Barack Obama, for example, somebody at Parliament said, oh, you could do Barack Obama. And I said, well, you know, and I started listening to it, and Lynn said, well, if you treat it like a song, if you, you know, if you sing the voice, then you start to get, you know, somewhere close to where you, you want to be. And actually, that was, a, it was quite revelatory for me, that, that speech is music. It made the process of learning voices much quicker. Also, YouTube really helped, because trying to find just a clip of somebody's voice was very difficult, you know, even back in 2005. Uh, so... We would always have little cassette recorders, uh, you know, to our ear, wherever we could pick up a, an impersonation. Whereas now we just punch in who we want and we can get the voice very quickly. I had literally LPs of voices, George Bernard Shaw, people like that, um, where I would have limited access to what, you know, they sounded like. Uh, but whereas now it's much easier. Have you had enough of me it's- to do an impression of me, uh, uh, Lewis? Uh, well, I don't know. I need to listen to you probably a little bit longer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that, that's really good. Funny, you know, radio presenters obviously are the, were were very uh, popular to impersonate because uh, radio and tele presenters because they're on all the time. Wogan is one of God rest him. You know, the old Terry Wogan there. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then it became Jeremy Vine. We did Jeremy Vine on. Dead ringers. Thank you so much. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, 
I think it, it, it just got easier to do it when I treated it as music. That was the thing that I, I could mess around a little bit. That was Indian Night and James Marriott there. Remember, you can read them every week in The Times and The Sunday Times. Just pick up a paper or go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox to subscribe. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, you might have heard this week about the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, surprising a Californian Taylor Swift-themed spin class with his attendance. A TikTok user chronicled that encounter. I think I just had the biggest heart attack of my life. So I walk into my Taylor Swift-themed 7am cycle class in Santa Monica, and there's Secret Service everywhere in the studio. They're lined up on the sidewalk, they're inside, they're in every corner. They're, like, standing there with their earpieces, and, like, they're all serious, and there's just security everywhere. I'm like, what is going on? And the teachers usually, like, turn on and off the lights. In this class, she just, like, kept the lights off. It was very private. And, of course, you've heard of, like, Justin Bieber coming in and singing a song, and, like, Beyonce and Jay-Z, like, riding class. So I'm freaking out the whole time. So the class ends and I'm looking around trying to see where she is. It turns out it was the Prime Minister of the UK. Apparently he's a Swifty. Apparently he's a Swifty. Yes, that's Rishi Sunak. Spending his precious holiday time going to pricey exercise classes frequented by the likes of Oprah, Lady Gaga, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Michelle Obama and the Beckhams. Now, what's all the fuss about? We sent Times Radio reporter Kia Browning to find out. I'm here for class. My name is Kia. Hi, Kia. I'm Patrick. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You are all set today on bike 51. 51. Okay, um, great. Follow me around this way to grab your shoes. Okay, thank you so much. Um, there's lockers. Yes. Lockers will be just down this way. You can leave everything in the locker. All you need in the studio are your shoes and water. Okay. Make sure you don't bring your phone. We don't allow those in the studio. Oh, fair enough. And then my team will be in the studio to help you set your bike up. Great. And so what do we do with the shoes? This is quite intimidating. Yeah, so you're going to put the shoes on so that you can clip into the bike. The bikes are indoor cycling bikes where you actually clip in with these delta cleats. 
So you'll actually be connected to the bike so it's incredibly stable. Okay, cool. Yeah. So no falling off. <laughs> no falling off. Okay, no. amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. So that was intense. Sort of like when you wake up from a nap and you don't know where you are. You know, like what time of the day is it? But we've just been in a pitch black room cycling for 45 minutes. That was so much fun. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I feel like rejuvenated. Yeah. Rejuvenated. Oh, that's good. I mean? That's good. And that's why we. It's why we don't do phones or like devices or anything. It's just no distractions. Yeah, exactly. No numbers. Nothing. Just be in the moment and yeah. like focus on yourself and what you need for the day. Lovely. Thank you. So that was heaps of fun. How long have you been an instructor? I've been an instructor at SoulCycle for about four and a half years. I was one of the original London instructors. Because it's got lots of cult celebrity status. We've been talking a lot on the show about how Rishi Sunak showed up to a SoulCycle class in California recently. Have you had any kind of big celebrity encounters here? So I think the thing with SoulCycle, it's a really safe place for people to to come and find a little moment for themselves. Um, so whilst I can't necessarily disclose who comes to class, I have had a few, yeah. But tell us about the class today. What was the sort of... They have themes, right? Often classes do have themes. Today's class doesn't. But sort of the general overview and outlook of SoulCycle is that it's an incredibly joyful place to be and it's for you to come and have a little moment for yourself if you need to work some things out physically emotionally mentally it's a place for you to come to do that with like-minded people who are also wanting to do the same thing and so what's your favorite class to teach then oh i have a few so i've been working on a class for four years called teen angst tuesday which is just old school alternative hits um, and that's got quite a big following and then I've recently started a class called Hot Girl Summer Friday and that definitely gets people going. The classes are quite intense I think maybe people don't realize that they're quite intense cardiovascular exercise do you think the spin gets a bit of a bad rap or, or maybe people don't fully realize what they're getting themselves into? I think you'll never truly understand what it is unless you come and try it for yourselves. And you know what? It's it's not for everybody, and we fully understand that. You are absolutely able to take it at your own pace. It is for anybody, but um, there is no denying the fact that it is quite hard. All sorts of people coming, um, and uh, all of them find it difficult. Including probably Rishi Sunak. <laughs> not going to say anything. <laughs> Well, that was Times Radio reporter Kia Browning, who we subjected to Rishi Sunak's favourite form of exercise, a soul cycle class. You just heard her speaking to London spin instructor Liv Darcy. Now, I just ran through a list of the celebrities who enjoy a good soul cycle spinning session. Oprah, Lady Gaga, Beyonce, Michelle Obama, The Beckhams. Of course, I omitted Katie Balls, political editor of The Spectator, who is a soul cycle regular and she joins me now. Hello, Katie. Hi. Uh, you write in this week's Spectator about your surreal experience, not only spinning, but spinning next to one Rishi Sunak. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit less discreet than that soul cycle instructor you just spoke to. <laughs> um, but effectively, we um, it was a few months ago, and I did keep it quiet initially. But I felt after he was spotted in LA, it was you know time to go global with my own my own truth. It was time to um, burn that source. 
exactly. You know, I've seen the polls. Um, <laughs> but um, it was a few months ago um, when actually Rishi Sunak was a backbench MP. It was the brief uh, time of the Liz Trust premiership. And I was quite late for an early morning spin cast in Notting Hill. Um, so that means the light, you can go in late, um, but the lights are off. So I was staggering towards my bike and this man in the dark was waving at me. And I was like, oh, that's a bit strange because I don't know that many people there. And then I got closer. And I was like, is that Rishi Sunak? And it was. And what was quite um, awkward was it was probably about two thirds empty because it's quite an early class. Um, but you have to book your bikes in advance. So I had somehow booked the bike right next to him in a class where there were lots of other empty bikes. Um, so I think it looked like I was stalking on him. So I tried to say to him I wasn't stalking him, but it might have um, given put the idea into his head, perhaps. Yeah, you said, you know, you write in this week's Spectator, I promise I booked this one, I said, so he didn't think I was stalking him. The instructor started to shout motivational phrases at us and blast out Britney Spears and Dua Lipa. For the next 45 minutes, Rishi and I sweated it out side by side. I mean, we just heard from our reporter, Kia, that, you know, it's pretty gruelling stuff. So I, were you sort of slightly torn thinking, God, I should be keeping an eye on how Rishi is doing here for journalistic purposes, or are you just totally absorbed in the moment? Well, I already knew that Rishi Sunak liked spinning because actually I'd asked him as an interview because I'd heard rumours. Uh, so the spectator was the, was the first to start writing about this. But um, what I think I didn't enjoy is there was a bit of a hierarchy in the spin class. So if you're really good, you tend to go to the front row or the sidebars. Now, I always go near the back um, because I would not identify as someone <laughs> who is very on the beat. Rishi Sunak's really good at spinning. So he was, you know, doing every move, um, Barely, I mean, breaking a sweat as far as I could tell. And then I felt as though he was at the back because he was a famous person, um, as, as opposed because he's not that good at spin. Um, so it does mess with, I think, the vibe of spin when you have a very good person at the back next to you, particularly when they're the prime minister and you have to speak to them for your job. It puts you off slightly in the 45 minutes. Has he ever, has he, he'll always have that on you, you know, your spinning technique. You'll never be able to, you'll never be able to, you know, Get Rishi Sunak's back to the wall because he'll always have your spinning technique against you. That I'll crumble in any interview in the future now because, you know, he'll, he'll just know. So we know what kind of exercise the Prime Minister prefers, uh, but across the floor of the Commons, Keir Starmer is partial to a bit of this. I've been playing football pretty well every week since I was 10 years old and I'm still playing now every week for 90 minutes. I see myself in the middle of midfield, you know, controlling operations strong left foot. Back in the day, a box-to-box -box player. <laughs> I think they'd say uh, not so much of the box-to-box -box anymore here. The funny thing is, Katie, that on the face of it, Labour leader saying, I play football, I love football, I go to Arsenal uh, every week on my season ticket, etc, etc. On the face of it, that should be more relatable than Rishi Sunak saying, I play, uh, I pay 20 quid uh, 26 quid a session. Yeah, my my mistake. You know, it's not cheap. This uh, soul cycle. Uh, but you know, you know, you and Rishi Sunak are, are obviously coining it. Um, on the face of it, that should be more relatable. The football stuff. But I was speaking to a Labour person earlier this week at, at Labour Aid who said, you know, Keir genuinely loves football. He's obsessed with football, but he just sort of struggles to make it sound relatable or even genuine. And I think that was a pretty pretty choice example of that problem there. Yeah, I think when I think with lots of these things, I think uh, voters are so used to feeling as though spin doctors or even politicians themselves are saying things because they focus group well. That's what they've been told they have to say to show their human side, um, which can be really difficult when they often feel as though 
if they let their guard down, they get it in lots of trouble. So I think Keir Starmer, everyone does say, you know, it takes football very seriously. But it, and I don't think people would think he's David Cameron level, where everyone just really didn't quite believe David Cameron when he insisted um, the teams he supported and occasionally got the names wrong. <laughs> but the passion doesn't necessarily come through. I think with Rishi Sunak, it's such a niche uh, sporting habit. And also, I, I think if if his team were around him saying, how can we make Rishi Sunak relate to the to the average man, they probably wouldn't say go to a 26-pound Notting Hill spin class. So you would have to at least believe Rishi Sunak is being sincere um, from the fact he, he does something which is probably a little bit cheesy um, as part of his, you know, in that sense. Whereas I think if Rishi Sunak started saying you know, he loves football and all these things, people probably just wouldn't believe him. He does like cricket. He loves cricket, doesn't he? Yeah. That, Sometimes that goes is. to the nets in the Oval, I hear. from uh, well, I heard that at the Number 10 Garden Party recently, that he, he was occasionally partial when Chancellor to nipping down to the nets at the Oval, just over the Thames and uh, having a session in there. Loves football as well. He's a season ticket holder at Southampton. Obviously, he doesn't get to go uh, very much. Well, he, but... Or he goes when they're losing, and then everyone <laughs> says it's a bad idea because it's suggesting the wrong thing. But I think with football, because it's obviously such a popular thing to do, it's harder to stand out or even, you know, perhaps you're related because you like something most people in the country do but it's you know it's almost a given that most people like football because and also yeah people think politicians are weird generally and have little faith that they're telling the truth so as you were saying earlier right it's you know if david cameron or tony blair is the one people always remember saying oh, i used to go and watch jackie milburn at, at newcastle when i was a kid and you know the ages didn't quite lap up he would have been watching ja- jackie milburn as like a six-month-old baby or something um you know and it's always quite hard for politicians to seem genuine and and sport is a real uh, a real struggle obviously you know people remember boris johnson jogging through st james's park with dylan the classic boris jog which is you know you appear to jog for about two minutes as long as the cameras are on you uh, at a pace of about one mile an hour Yes. And I think Boris Johnson, he could always pull it off in a way because um, people would, you know, run the photo saying his outfit wasn't, uh, you know, as as slick as the people he was running with. Um, But there was a it was it was a very Boris Johnson way of of doing it. Um, And then you had, you think, you know, George Osborne when he was on, I think he was put on a diet at some point. Um, And also when politicians start exercising out of the blue or going on diets, everyone starts to say they're about to run for leader. So there's also that risk to... um, upping your exercise routine uh, very suddenly. Well, yeah, Boris Johnson actually wrote this recently. It'll be interesting to see uh, how the, you know, the explosion in weight loss jabs like Azempic changed this because Boris Johnson wrote recently, you know, he was struck by how all of his cabinet colleagues were losing weight towards the end of his premiership. And then they realised, one, they were on Azempic and two, they were anticipating his, his, his departure from office. And indeed, then some of the people uh, then ran for... Uh, ran for the leadership. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Really, really interesting topic. You know, we haven't. We've only barely scratched the surface with you know Keir Starmer ripping up his diary to beat Anna Sawar in a five-a-side game. Boris Johnson jogging. Rishi Sunak playing cricket and spinning. Indeed, with Katie Balls, political edge of the Spectator. Alex Alec Douglas Hume, of course, only first British, uh, the only first and only British Prime Minister to have played first-class cricket. We could go on for hours, but I'll let you go. Katie Balls, political edge of the Spectator, and Rishi Sunak, spinning partner. Thanks very much for joining us here on Times Radio. Today we're asking how politicians can keep off those parliamentary pounds when they're dealing with busy schedules packed with events full of free food and booze and travelling the length and breadth of the country without access to their own kitchens. The Tory, Charles Walker, is the MP in charge of all the bars and restaurants in Parliament. He told Matt Chorley just how easy it is to gain weight when you work in Westminster. I mean, I've lost three stones since I entered the House of Commons 19 years ago. Wow. 
I've, I've gone in the right direction. But certainly when I got there, I put on quite a lot of weight. It's very easy. <laughs> and that's not so that's not so much eating with MPs. You get you, you get invited to receptions. You get you get invited by various organizations who are hosting events at the House of Commons, external organizations, their events. You have to be very careful what you eat. Uh, that was Charles Walker, the Considerate MP in charge of all the bars and restaurants in Parliament. Now, according to Angela Rayner, however, seeing your colleagues in the gym, at the parliamentary gym, is a bridge too far. You see, I stopped going to the parliamentary gym because you just got to see too much. It's, it's just not the way you want to see your colleagues. Yeah, Dominic Rabin Lycra is a site a number of MPs have described to me. Uh, they never forget that. So, what's the solution? Is there a solution? Earlier I spoke to Tanny Gray-Thompson, one of Britain's greatest ever Paralympic athletes and a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. I asked if she was immediately struck by just how unhealthy Parliament was when she joined the Lords back in 2010. Not straight away. I mean, it, it is a slightly strange place to work. I did a politics degree. I thought I knew what I was going into. But actually, I'm not sure anything quite prepares you for the hours that you work, sometimes the, the oddity of the place and just how much of your life it can take over. I mean, you can choose to an extent what you do, but it's not a, a place where there is a lot of work-life balance at times. Which makes it difficult, I imagine, to carve out the time one needs to keep fit, keep a check on one's physical health. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we made a conscious decision not to move to London when I went into the Lords. So I did try to split my home life and my working life. But actually, you can work incredibly long hours. You know, if you go into the building at nine o'clock in the morning and you don't leave till midnight, that lack of sleep and, you know, poor food choices and just, you know, it, it does build up. So you have to be really, really conscious to think about how you look after yourself if you want to keep contributing. Yeah, and I know this myself as a, a lobby journalist. It's incredibly easy, if you so wish, to spend every night, speaking from bitter experience here, getting a big bowl of chips and having four pints on the terrace, if you so wish. It's very easy to make unhealthy choices, isn't it? Yeah, I agree with you about the bowl of chips. Um, you know, one thing I don't do is I don't drink in the building because I think it's my place of work. Mm. And I don't know where, anywhere else that any of my friends that they're able to do that. And I know that probably sounds like really sniffy, but, you know, for me, there are sort of lines that I draw. But um, some of those things are really, and they're, they're really hard things to explain. I do not expect any sympathy whatsoever for the way I choose to work, but it is a, a big commitment. And I think the other bit is that even in the holidays, um, you know, when we're on recess now, me and, and a huge number of colleagues still choose to work. Even, you know, it's not just we get paid, so we turn up and that's the day we work. Because for me, summer's a point to catch up and, you know, come back to in September. Yes, getting more rest, but but also a chance to kind of do stuff you didn't have time to do but before summer recess. So the one thing I do, you know, I, I do have wearables. I do track my sleep. I do track what I eat. I do try to be physically active every single day. doesn't always work. The one good thing is that you can walk a couple of miles around the building. So I do try and schedule meetings in different parts of the building. So at least I move around a lot in the day. And that sounds like a small thing, but actually that's probably one of the things that helps keep me sane is just being able to move around during the day. And today we're asking how politicians can possibly keep fit or get healthier. Uh, beyond having more Paralympians and Olympians uh, in our Houses of Parliament... What's one change you think we could make to our political culture and institutions that would improve the health of those within it? 
That's a really weird one because we looked, um, we had a vote recently about whether we changed our working hours and went nine to five and that that sort of um, didn't get through. Because actually I don't think changing the working hours would would do much because we'd never finish at five o'clock. That is not the way the house laws works in terms of how much people. I, I think you've got to be really strict with yourself. You know, we are not employees. We don't have a medical team. We don't have health checks. They're starting to bring them in, which I think is good. But I, I think actually part of the induction process should be a great big lecture on if you want to contribute, you need to look after yourself. I think for me, it's an advantage having been an athlete that, you know, you can't give your best unless you eat right and you sleep right. Now, that's not to say that I do that all the time, but, you know, you you have to just take that personal responsibility and sometimes just know when it's time to walk out the building. But it's a really intriguing place. It is really easy to stay there till half 10, 11 o'clock at night you know, kind of in the chamber working, you get to speak to some of the greatest minds in Britain and, you know, having the ability to kind of learn from other people can be really intoxicating. And would you ban alcohol from the parliamentary state? Yes, I would. Um, so, well, I mean, the, there are places for it. You know, there, we do have restaurants, you know, uh, some nice ones. You know, I, I probably would think a little bit differently about how some of the bars are. I mean, there, there's a staff bar and, you know, that's, uh, I think once you've finished your working day, that's all right. But I'm I'm probably not a fan of of alcohol being around when we're voting or when, when we're still working. That probably wouldn't go down very well with a few of my colleagues, but I, I, that's only one step because nobody makes you drink. You, you can choose to do it or you can choose not to. So I think there's other things that I have a little bit higher on my priority list. That was Tony Gray-Thompson, Baroness Gray-Thompson, one of Britain's greatest ever Paralympic athletes and a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. A modest proposal there banning alcohol in the Commons. Let's see if that ever takes off. Now, in the town of High Wycombe, the MP, Mayor and Councillors are publicly weighed every year in the middle of the town centre in a self-described attempt to deter them from gaining weight at the taxpayers' expense. Cheers erupt if a lawmaker has shed a few pounds. Booze await those who've put any on. Steve Baker, the Tory MP, has had to subject himself to that for 13 years now. That tradition, which dates back as far as 1678, is conducted largely in jest, but... But they'll be on to something. Now, I'm joined by the former health minister and Tory peer, James Bethel. Hello, James. Hello there. Um, you know, perhaps your your idea of what healthy is, is is warped by the fact that you spent most of your, uh, your youth raving at Ministry of Sound. Uh, but do you find that, did you find that when you became a minister and a working peer, it was more difficult to stay healthy? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're right. I am... Um... I'm making up for sins committed in in my earlier life. And I am very conscious that I, I want to live a, a, a long life. My father and my grandfather died early of heart attacks. So, yeah, I want to have a full stretch. And the, and the Houses of Parliament are a really tough place to, to lead a healthy life. Penny put it really well. In addition to all the generous hospitality and the drinking and the eating, uh, there's also the stress of it because it is... There's a huge amount of social, political, professional pressure on you all the time. It's pretty unrelenting, very long hours. And it's very easy to reach for uh, food and drink as a, a little bit of a prop to get you through the day. And that's, for me, one of the reasons why I, I have to really keep an eye on my fitness, on my weight, on, on what I'm eating and drinking. And I must admit, it doesn't always work. And, you know, do you find that 
colleagues share your view? Do you think something major needs to change? I think I think that a lot of colleagues think that alcohol plays a critical role in the in the political process, that it breaks down social boundaries, that they would say a lot of the most important relationships that they have made have been forged over uh, a drink or two, uh, that uh, in, in an environment where things are highly contested and, and debates are very heated, uh, visit going to the bar with some colleagues and particularly ones with from opposite opposition parties uh, is one of the ways in which you can bring conviviality and and uh, uh, and companionship into this tough game. And that is temptingly true. And I have got some very good relationships with people that frankly began with a drink too many and, and having a laugh and, and having some fun together. But that is no way to run a country. And I have found to my cost that it, it really hit my effectiveness as a professional and as someone who takes pride in their work to be carrying a hangover and to be carrying poor health uh, and to be distracted by, frankly, a sort of rundown system. So I think we are just going to have to move to being a, a more healthy parliamentary environment. Otherwise, we're just putting too much pressure uh, on our parliamentarians to be able to do a good job. And do you think, given the stresses and strains and, as you say, the pressure involved and the sort of erratic sitting hours, particularly in the Commons, and indeed the Lords, you know, the Lords has been sitting until two and three in the morning recently, that it's possible to have alcohol on the parliamentary estate and, you know, safely and in a way that people don't overindulge? Um, it's tough. I mean, I, I think that uh, at the moment it is absolutely um, uh, ubiquitous. You know, in most of the areas where I meet um, other politicians in order to discuss... Um, you know, my work, alcohol is freely available at the same place where you get your coffee. So environment does matter. And if, if things are cheap and freely available, you will end up consuming more. I mean, that's just a sort of basic human nature. So it could be restrained a bit. Um, but I think that there is a case for, for being, as Tani said, like network rail or um, uh, Marks and Spencers or any other professional environment for there to be an absolute ban on everyone drinking uh, during their professional hours. And that would be a great leveller. It would be an incredible signal to the rest of the country that we have to reboot our relationship with alcohol. Um, and it would undoubtedly improve the performance of parliamentarians. Some would suffer. Some, I dare say, would hardly be able to get through the day without a few drinks. And they may uh, really, really struggle. But uh, with the younger generation um, of parliamentarians, both peers and MPs, you'll see that the alcohol consumption is much, much lower. There's been a real uh, generational shift. Uh, and I think that a month off, an alcohol-free January for Parliament might be something to, um, to suggest as a bit of a pilot to see how it goes. So now you know that's how MPs keep fit. Or don't. Anyway, I'll be back on Monday. Make sure you like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast from. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.